0: listening to the Northside Christian Church sermon podcast. These teachings are recorded at our weekly Sunday morning gatherings in Springfield, Missouri. For more about our church, service times and how to connect, visit northsidechristianchurch.net. Hey Northside, Merry Christmas! Yeah! You might as well get used to saying it. I mean, here we are. The children's Christmas program is today. I mean, we're in full swing of Christmas around here. You can tell by looking. Uh, in fact, I, I went into, uh, I mean, we're hearing the songs on the radio. I, I went into John's office this morning to borrow or steal some mints, depending on how you want to look at that. And uh, I walk into his office and there's a song playing right there through his speakers in his office. And guess what the song was? Do you see what I see? It was just a, uh, and I just thought how appropriate because that is the series we kicked off last week. Uh, our Christmas series, do you see what I see where well, we're looking at Christmas this year through the eyes of the apostle John, but not as he wrote in his gospel of John, but what was revealed to him by Jesus in the book of revelation. I mean, If you want to see an accurate, clear picture of who was in the manger in four BC, if you want an accurate picture, you go to the book of revelation. Because it's there that we see Jesus clearly for who he really is in in all of his power. And you get a complete view of his glory and his might and all of that which was veiled from us when he put on flesh in that first century and became a baby. We didn't have all of that picture at that moment, but that's who was in the manger. And last week, Alan Tiger just did a great job of of unfolding for us the answer, giving clarity to the question that we asked, which was who was in the manger. And, and Alan talked about this this priestly redeemer and this powerful king and the one who holds the keys to death and to Hades. And it was just a more accurate picture of who Jesus really is. And, and if you missed that, I'm going to encourage you to go back and listen. It was a great sermon. And if you don't just listen, go watch, go to YouTube and watch, because then you'll also see some perspectives of Jesus people have had through the ages that actually were pretty funny and uh, so you want to watch it as well. But today I want to answer this question. Why do I need Jesus? Why do I need Jesus? I think that's a pretty appropriate question as we come into our Christmas season. Why do I need Jesus? Because if there is an inability to answer that question quickly or accurately. It may be one of the reasons why so many of us will go through the Christmas season celebrating, gathering with our family and friends, decorating, giving gifts, spending money without any real fellowship with Jesus, without actually growing deeper in our relationship with Jesus, without drawing closer to Him, without much thought, without much focus, without much attention on Jesus, because you can actually go through the Christmas season and not need Him that much. That may be one of the risks that we run. I mean, his title is in the name Christmas, but I don't know how central that is to our celebration. I mean, I know it is to our salvation. I mean, we'll we'll say we need Jesus for our salvation, but I, I don't know if the way we live our lives every day during this month of December would suggest we need him that much. That we depend on him for much. Sometimes we look at our month of December and we think, you know, we got it covered. I think we're okay. And before you dismiss the idea that you might not be making Jesus central to who you are and what you do, I want you to understand that even in the very first century, we've got a church that Jesus is writing to, Jesus is speaking to. It's right there in Laodicea, a church that pretty much had everything. They needed nobody or anything. They felt like they were okay. They got it covered. But Jesus was on the outside looking in. I mean, here he is, the head, the groom, and his bride, the church, had him on the outside looking in. And I just wonder, as we come to December 11th today, if maybe we got Jesus on the outside looking in. Because they did. That that, that was their approach. That was their attitude. I don't know that they realized it. I don't know that they knew it until Jesus confronted it. But in many ways, this church in Laodicea is a lot like the American church today. Probably like our church in some ways. In fact, maybe of all those churches, the seven of them that the book of Revelation is written to, I wonder if Laodicea is a lot like ours. And I want us just to read it together. I want us to come to this together. I think it's, it's so helpful as we come into this Christmas season to look at Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. So if you look at that, look at that with me, open your Bible, your device to Revelation 13, 14 through 21. And the text begins with this. These are Jesus' words. This red letter in your Bible. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write. I want to pause there for a minute. To the angel. Who are we talking about here? There's some speculation as to what he means to the angel of the church. Angels were messengers. It's believed that he's talking about to the elders, the leaders, the pastor of this church in Laodicea write these words to be delivered to the church. And so to these leaders, to the angel of the church, here's these words, to Laodicea, a church that currently is in what we would know as Latakia Syria, a church that was formed during one of Paul's missionary... It was the fruit of one of his missionary journeys. In fact, this church Laodicea is mentioned multiple times in the book of Colossians. If you were reading Colossians, a letter to the church in Colossae, Laodicea is mentioned multiple times. In fact, at the very end of the book... Excuse me. In Colossians four sixteen, Paul says, after this letter, the letter he's writing to the Colossians, is read among you. uh, Make sure it's delivered to the church in Laodicea. Let them read it, and then take the the letter I wrote to them, and let it come to you. Colossae was actually pretty close to Laodicea. It was about nine point three miles away. This is the church of Laodicea, and here's what Jesus says to the church. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and. True witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Why do you need Jesus? Because you're useless without Him. That's what He's telling the church of Laodicea. Without Jesus, you're useless. That's what he meant by the word lukewarm. Lukewarm means, means useless. And when Jesus said this to Laodicea, he was kind of hitting a nerve. Because you just got to know what's going on. Laodicea piped their water from the springs that came from other places through a, an elaborate aqueduct system and through clay tubes that were encased in concrete. And so if you were even to go there today, we know that that uh, northwest of Laodicea was the mountainous region of Hierapolis, and Hierapolis is, contained what we know to be the hot boiling springs. People would go there to receive healing and, and to go into those hot springs and, and to soak in those springs. That was Hierapolis. And, and water from those, those boiling springs of Hierapolis was sent down to Laodicea. And that was located to the northwest of Laodicea. And then you had to the southeast of Laodicea, this place called Colossae that I mentioned earlier. And Colossae, on its mountain peaks that often were white with snow, the melting ice and snow would turn into this cold, refreshing water that would flow from there. And they would pipe that water from Colossae all the way to Laodicea. And of course, whether it was hot water or whether it was cold water, both that are really good, by the time it got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm which just really isn't good for much of anything. I mean, if it was hot, then it was good for healing and bathing. If it was cold, then it was, it'd be great for refreshing drink. But lukewarm is useless. And you all know this. Why? Because so many of us are coffee drinkers. Any coffee drinkers in the room right now just want to say, that's me. Yeah, in the morning, especially this time of year, you get up and you get that piping hot coffee and the steam is rising off of it. And you walk outside and then more shows up. And mm, you just drink that right there. You just love piping hot coffee. It's, it's, it's awesome. Or if you get later in your day, you need a little pick-me-up later in the day, and, you, and you're out and about, and you run by a place like Seven Brew, and you get that cold brew, cold foam, cold coffee, maybe a frappuccino, whatever it is, but you get that cold coffee, and it's so refreshing, and it's so good. Hot is good. Cold is awesome. But if you're in your office like I am sometimes, and you got the, the two mugs, because you got the one you brought with you at 5 a.m., and it's sitting there, and that was your morning coffee, then you need to pick me up later in the day. And so you got your, your office mug and it's sitting there with that coffee. And you start working away and you're typing things about Hierapolis and Laodicea. And then you accidentally reach for the wrong mug. And as you're thinking about this, you put it to your lips. And that lukewarm, if warm coffee hits your lips, what do you want to do? Spit it out. Spew it out. And that's what Jesus says. Because you're lukewarm, I just want to spew you out of my mouth. Because you're useless for the kingdom and, and useless for the faith. And right now as a church, you're, you're even useless in the kingdom. He's going to give us some reasons why that is the case. Jesus describes them this way, which was a shock. I mean, it was a shock for them to hear because they were the people who had it together. They had the good jobs. They had the good sources of income. They were well-educated people. They were the ones that people came to their city for good medical care. I mean, they were the ones that people needed. They were well-educated. They were the ones who could provide for their needs. They were the ones with the beautiful wool for the rugs and the blankets. And people would come to them for clothing and coats. I mean, like if you were going to say... Who would God want to use to influence the world? It would be these people. They already were influencing the world. They had what the world prioritizes. They had what the world values and desires and wants. But the problem was their affluence made them prideful. And it made them blind to how spiritually bankrupt and how relationally poor they actually were. They weren't giving the world what it actually needed. The world thought they were, but Jesus is looking at his church and he's saying, you and this world are desperate and you're poor and you're weak because you're pursuing the things of this world, but you're not pursuing me. He was on the outside of the church looking in. And if the manger at Christmas time reveals anything to us, what it reveals to us is that Jesus wants to have fellowship with us. He wants to have relationship with us. He wants to be with us, Emmanuel. But they were not in relationship with Jesus. Too many things got in the way. Too many things were in the way. And so here's what Jesus says to that church at Laodicea. He says in verse 17, You say, I am rich, I've acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor. You're poor. That was hard for a church in Laodicea to hear when they are the wealthiest of the seven cities that the book of Revelation is written to. When you look at the fact that archaeology uncovered some homes in Laodicea that were several thousand square feet. That's a lot different than the homes we find in Nazareth where Jesus was born that were no bigger than a parking stall. The homes in Laodicea had indoor plumbing, they had access to water, they were wealthy. In fact, to illustrate their wealth, in AD 60 to 61, when there was an earthquake that devastated that region, some would say it was 8.5 on the Richter scale, based on the devastation that happened, and when Rome came in, the government, to say, we will provide funds to help you rebuild, Laodicea was like, no, I think we got it covered. Like, they were insulted, offended. We don't need your money. We're Laodicea. I mean, who does that? They did. They were self-sufficient. And that kind of attitude just crept its way into the church. They they weren't crying out to Jesus, desperate for him, because they didn't see how desperate they were. Without Jesus, they were useless. But not just that, but Jesus says, without me, you're, you're poor. Without Jesus, you're spiritually and relationally poor. You're bankrupt, Jesus says. And then in verse 17, Jesus continued with this. Not only are you poor, but you're blind and naked. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. It's just so obvious as Jesus writes, He knows you. He knows your thoughts. He knows your actions. He knows your ways. He knows your habits. He knows your hangups. He knows your hurts. He knows everything about you. He knows this church. He knows who we are. He knows how we're made up. He knows how we think. He knows what we do. He knows this because everything he says just hits a nerve with this church. I mean, everything in that verse is so directed to them. He says, you're blind and you need salve to put on your eyes. And he's speaking to the Laodiceans who were known for as the chief medical center of Phrygia, and they were famous for an eye salve that they made. They developed from the mineral springs that could cure a lot of vision ailments. Not only that, but even then in the first century, it was Laodicea that was performing successful cataract surgeries. They were helping other people with their vision. And Jesus says, but you're blind. You're blind to the important things. You're blind to what matters. You need to get your eyes healed. And to do that, your salve isn't going to work. You need a salve that comes from Jesus. You need Jesus. Why? Because without Jesus, you're blind. When there is a discrepancy between your perception of reality, excuse me, there's a a discrepancy between your perception and reality. And because of that spiritual blindness, there's no salve that can fix it. No surgeries can fix it. They needed spiritual healing from Jesus so they could see him clearly for who he really is. They needed to have the eyes of their heart opened up. And so Jesus tells them to repent and to put salve on their eyes, the kind that Jesus provides, because without him, you're blind. You're useless, you're spiritually and relationally poor, you're blind, all that. Without Jesus, you're naked. He says you're blind and you're naked, which would be an affront to them. Because they were known for their textile products, especially the fine raven black wool that came from this rare breed of sheep that lived in the surrounding mountains. It was said to be softer than that of Miletus. I have no idea what that means. I don't know anything about Miletus, but it was softer than that, apparently. And it was spun into fine clothing, particularly that of outer garments and cloaks and coats. And Rich people came from all over the empire to buy clothes that were made in Laodicea. It it was... It was like the Lululemon of the world. That was Laodicea. They were known for that. They were proud of their fashion and their clothing. And Jesus says, you're naked. Which in that culture was the ultimate humiliation. You may be physically clothed, but you're spiritually naked and vulnerable. You're guilty in your sin. And unless you repent, your sin will not be covered. It will be exposed. So Jesus says, repent. And if you would repent, then you'll be given white clothes to wear, white clothes to put on. A little different than the black wool, but what, what, what why white clothes? He's just saying that the guilt of your sin that marks you, it's going to be covered with this, this robe of righteousness. One that's been bought and paid for and provided through the blood of Jesus. It's not often we think of white robe with, with the blood of the Lamb, the blood of Jesus, and yet... The Scriptures tell us through through the blood of Jesus that our sins are made white as snow. That He makes us without blemish and free from accusation. We are purified, forgiven, justified. In fact, in Revelation chapter 7, this is the picture of all of us when we're gathered around the throne of God. When the saints are gathered there, we see them and they're wearing white robes. Is the emphasis on robe? Probably not so much as the fact that they're cleansed. They're cleansed from their sin by the, it says, by the blood of the Lamb. They're made spotless by Jesus, who makes them without blemish, blameless. You don't need clothes with a fancy label. You don't need to wear clothes from Laodicea or and You don't need that. You need Jesus. You need the clothes that only Jesus can supply. That's why you need Jesus. So He can cover your shame and your guilt. Make you blameless before God. You need to be clothed in Him. When God looks at you, you want to be clothed in Jesus. In fact, this is why in Galatians three, twenty-six through twenty seven, it says, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through your faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ, you've been clothed with him. You have put him on through your faith in, in Jesus, who through his blood, the forgiveness of sins is possible. By his grace you are saved. Those are the clothes that matter. To be clothed with Jesus. And I know this time of year, man, we're we're into you know, getting stocked up with our clothes and getting this and getting that, but what about being clothed in Christ? That's what matters. And then we read in Revelation 3.18 where Jesus says to his church, and believe me, when he's speaking to Laodicea, he's speaking to us. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich. Interesting. It's like Jesus knows His people. He knows this church. Everything He says just hits them. Why? Because Laodicea was the banking center of that region. They were. They had enough gold. Why would they buy any? But Jesus' admonition for them to buy gold refined in the fire, it parallels what... God says in Isaiah 55.1, when he says, you have no money, come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Buying is figurative for obtaining. Obtain what you really need from me. You need a different kind of gold. There's the kind that can fill your bank account. Yeah, you got that. But it's not the kind that can satisfy your soul. It is, it is not the kind that can bring healing to your heart or to your relationships. Maybe you've noticed that some of the richest people in the world or in the nation are the ones whose families are in the worst possible state. Because gold does not change a heart. It it, it doesn't uh, change the brokenness in a family. Why are the richest the least satisfied? Why is that the case over and over again that the richest are the least satisfied? It's because we... What we need is a goal that actually satisfies and fulfills us and, and comes from Jesus Himself and, and fills us with the joy and the fulfillment that we need, not what we chase after, not what the world prioritizes. In fact, Isaiah 55 goes on to say this. It says, why spend money on, on, that, on, on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? It? Listen, listen to me. And eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Listen, that you may live. Money is not the Savior. Jesus is. You need Him. You can't buy forgiveness. Jesus paid for that. So the church of Laodicea, you're chasing after the wrong things. Laodicea, you're useless. You're lukewarm. You're spiritually and relationally poor. You're blind and you're naked. Because you place your confidence, your worth, your your joy, your life in your affluence, in, in your privilege, in your resources, in your possessions. Meanwhile, Jesus is on the outside of the church looking in. There he is, the groom, and he wants in to his church. I don't know if they even realize it or not, but he's not in the church. He's not with them. He's not in close proximity relationship with them. He's on the outside looking in. And that is why we read this in Revelation three nineteen. Here's what Jesus says. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Why is Jesus standing at the door knocking? Why is He out there? Why is He on the outside? This is His church. I mean, the most jarring image of this text ought to be this one. That Jesus, the Savior, the Lamb, the Creator, Almighty God, is on the outside of His church wanting in. And yet the church is pursuing everything else but Jesus. They have everything they need. But the one that matters. Does that not sound like perhaps what the American church is like? Perhaps what we are like? Perhaps what December looks like? Is it perhaps what Christmas looks like? Is it what our families look like right now? Jesus knocking at. I, you know, usually when I've heard this text used in the past, it's always been used in the context of, you know, like someone who's an unbeliever receiving jesus it's like for evangelism and they'll say jesus you know he's he's standing at the door of your heart knocking he wants to come in and save you you know receive jesus and usually it's almost like it's like a person who's not a christian you know let jesus come into your life And, and that's not a wrong picture at all it's just not the context of what's actually happening in this verse he's not standing at at the door of the heart of someone who's not a believer he's standing at the door of his church of his bride, of you. These are believers that Jesus wants to have fellowship with and be close to, but they're too preoccupied with other things to let Jesus in to their church. And that may be a picture of our church right now. He wants relationship, fellowship, but we're not praying, we're not fasting, we're not depending on him, we're not thinking on him, we're not listening or obeying him right now. We're pursuing fancy clothing and great health care and wealth and influence and money and gold, but we're not pursuing Jesus. It may be why sometimes Christians from poorer areas will they'll come to America and they'll visit our churches and typically sometimes often they're appalled by our lukewarmness. They're not impressed by the technology. They're appalled by how little we pray, how desperate we are in our prayers, by how little we give, how much we spend on ourselves. How afraid we are to share our faith or to talk with others or identify ourselves as Christians when we are in a culture where we can do that freely and they came from a place where they likely would be persecuted for doing so, but do it anyway. Oftentimes it looks like a lukewarm church. J.D. Greer listed qualities of lukewarm Christians in a message he gave several years ago. and It was things like this. He said, lukewarm Christians... They crave acceptance by God more than excuse me, they they crave acceptance by people more than God. Lukewarm Christians, they rarely share their faith in Christ. Lukewarm Christians, they, they rationalize their sin. Like they don't really hate sin, they just don't want to be thought of as bad people. Francis Chan said, lukewarm Christians don't really want to be saved from sin, only the penalty of sin. He said lukewarm Christians think more about life on earth than eternity in heaven. For real Christians, they live as if eternity is just around the corner. They're not obsessed with a bucket list because they know they'll get everything on that list times a bazillion in eternity. The reality is real Christians are not thinking YOLO. You only live once. YOLO. No. Real Christians are thinking, Yowf. Yowf. You actually live forever. You actually live forever. Lukewarm Christians only turn to God when they need something. Lukewarm Christians give when when it's convenient. Francis Chan said, Lukewarm Christians love their luxuries and rarely give to the poor in a truly sacrificial way. Lukewarm Christians... Look like Laodicea. And I think it would be a good and appropriate exercise for us to wonder, does it look like us? Lukewarm Christians are not that much different than the rest of the world. They look the same as everybody else. They watch the same movies as everybody else. They listen to the same music as everybody else. They use the same filthy language. They possess the same morals. They raise their kids like everybody else. Their priorities are the same. They buy the same things. They use their homes in the same way. And Jesus says, don't be lukewarm. It makes me want to spew you out of my mouth. Be hot. Be cold. Now, sometimes when people have read this verse before, they said, God would rather you be cold and totally rejecting him than to be lukewarm. Yeah, so like Somehow that interpretation came out for a while. And it's like, that is not what he's saying. <laughs> like, he prefers that? Like, that's good? No. I would rather you be useful whether you're hot or cold. Whether you're a hot caramel latte or you're a frappuccino. I'd rather you be hot or cold. I want you to be useful. That's who God wants us to be. In fact, it'd probably be good. Maybe you could just turn to someone this morning and just say, "Ah, you're hot. You are hot. Or discernment might say better. You probably shouldn't. You just probably shouldn't do that. Um, Just a thought. Probably shouldn't. And then Jesus says this, Revelation 3, 21. To the one, to the one who's victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who's victorious. Man, that's what I want. I want to be victorious. So how do I be victorious? It's different. It's different. In the kingdom economy, in God's economy, than it is in our economy, it looks different. That's for sure. The Christmas story is just so counterintuitive to the way we think. We think a power for life is marked by position and power and influence, but Jesus didn't come with any of that. He came with weakness. He wasn't weak. We know that because we're reading Revelation right now. He wasn't weak, but he came in weakness. He came that way. He's all-powerful, but he made himself nothing. Why? Because weakness welcomes the power of God. Because when we are weak, He is strong, when we are weak, and people say there's no way, that's when God works, and people say, "Wow, that was impossible. that no one could have done that but God. And that's what the Christmas story is all about. No one could do this but God. In our weakness, we're strong. We don't have to be Laodicea, where we think we're all that all-powerful, Almighty. No, it's in the margin. The greater the margin of weakness, the greater the power of God is seen because He does what seems impossible. If Jesus was born into a wealthy family, we'd say, look what wealth can do. If He was born into a political family, we'd say, look what power can do. If He was born into scholarly excellence and brilliance, we'd say, look what education can do. But Jesus was born in weakness so that in Christmas, we would say, look what God can do. Look what God can do. Only God can do this. It's why God said my power works best in weakness. He said that in 2 Corinthians 12. My power is made perfect. It works best in weakness. My grace is all you need. We want to posture and pretend and show strength. We want that. Because we don't want people to think of us as weak. In other words, I think in a lot of our hearts and souls, if you're completely honest with yourself, who you really want to be is Laodicea. We want to be Laodicea. And Jesus is just telling us, if that's your priority, if that is the affection of your heart, you do not want to be Laodicea. You are useless, poor, wretched, blind, naked. You're without. We're useless without him. And Jesus says, if you have ears to hear, let you hear this. Come to me. Look to me, he says. Seek me. Let me into your heart. Let me into your mind. Let me into your life. Let me into your assembly. Let me into your church. Instead of valuing the possessions of this world, instead of valuing these things, would you value me? Instead of worshiping the saviors of success, the saviors of pleasure, the saviors of, of affluence, would you recognize there's only one savior? None of those will save. In fact, they will send you into brokenness and despair. I need Jesus because without him, without him, My life falls apart. Without him, I'm nothing. I'm apart from him, I'm nothing. I'm just building on a foundation of straw and hay that's going to fall. I'm useless. I'm weak. I'm blind. And the question that you need to answer today is the question of why do you need Jesus? What's he saying to you? What are you trying to replace him with? so Jesus says in Revelation 3, 18-19, those I love, I rebuke. I, I, those I love, I discipline. I, I, I'm rebuking you because I love you. You're my bride, you're my people, you're my church. But right now I'm on the outside looking in. Earnestly repent, he says. Earnest means a sincere, intense conviction. That you need to come to Jesus. You need to turn back to the Lord. He's standing at the door and he's knocking to come in to... Relationship, fellowship with us to be closer to us. And so maybe this year for you, it needs to be a, that you pick up an Advent guide or you get online and you do our Advent guide so that every day you're fixing your thoughts on Jesus. Maybe you're back into your Bible reading as you finish this year through our year of Bible engagement so you're coming to know Jesus. Maybe it means instead of right now pursuing the the clothing and the luxury and all of these things, we just start pursuing Jesus because He wants to be in relationship with us. So today, if you want to begin a relationship with Jesus, if today you need to repent and turn to Jesus, you just want to pray with someone to deepen that relationship with Jesus, I just want to invite you to come today. In fact, if you would just stand to your feet right now, here in a moment, I'm going to invite you to come right over here to Decision Point to meet me. I would love to talk and pray with you right over there if you're watching online you can go to northsidechristianchurch.net slash decision and just begin that relationship with us and, so we can begin a conversation I think as you leave today on the walls at the exit, as you leave are some boxes you can give to the Lord today this is a way that we put him first we give to him first we prioritize him in our lives and show our love for him because he he adores you I think the question that we're asking is do you adore him do you adore him do you magnify and glorify him above and over everything else in Jesus we pray right now that God we would open the door to you and let you come in we invite you Jesus to come right now come to save us come to heal us come to redeem us come to fill us come to give us everything that we need in you God, we we would trade out everything in this life for you. So we can buy a gold that's been refined in the fire. One that you give that heals us from our sins and cleanses us from our diseases. and Renews our minds and our spirits and washes over us. Cleansing us, sanctifying us, renewing us. So Jesus, we pray that you would come. Come this Christmas. Emmanuel, God be with us right now. Enter in as we adore you, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us this morning, Northside. Before you go, make sure you check in and let us know you were here. Text the word CHECK to 417-233-1200. If you want to respond to today's service, you can do that online through Decision Point. If you want to know more about baptism or becoming a member, you can request more info at northsidechristianchurch.net slash decision. This is also the place to find out about our life groups, find out what sort of service opportunities there are, or if you just need to get in touch with a minister. And if you're online, you probably use social media too. Make sure you're Following along with Northside on our Facebook page, Instagram account, YouTube channel, or Twitter. We are glad that you chose to join us this morning. As we head out for the week, let's make sure we take the love of God with us. Take good care of each other, Northside.